welcome to the Beastified Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. This is a show dedicated to inspiring you to treat your body and mind the way it should be treated. Each week we delve deep with some of the brightest and most forward-thinking, out-of-the-box minds in health, consciousness, mindset, and spirituality. Our intention is to fuse and unlock the conscious warrior within and shift the balance in the current paradigm. Deep and often intense, these conversations are released every Wednesday and are designed to inspire, educate, motivate and encourage you to discover, uncover, unlock and unleash your potential. In this episode of the Beast Defy podcast, we're joined by Stephen Hayes. He is everyone's image of the iconic Master Warrior Sage. Black Belt Magazine calls him a legend and one of the 10 most influential martial art masters alive in the world today, and for a good reason. He is peerless in his ability to share real and honest ninja combat secrets. Enriched by unparalleled insights, in the 1970s, Stephen travelled to Japan to seek out the ninja masters and he eventually began training with the ninja to Grandmaster Matsaki Hatsunami. In this talk, we get into many areas from the ancient culture of the ninja, his incredible journey, training and learning the ways of the ninja, training with the natural elements, and how Stephen came around to being the bodyguard of the Delhi Lama, and much more. And also at the end of this talk, Stephen sees us out with such a powerful quote, and I know you're all going to love this conversation, so without further ado, Stephen hears. Um, well, Stephen, I'd just like to say welcome to the Beast of Five podcast. Great to be here. Mm, Stephen, we are so honoured to have you on the podcast today and a privilege to be able to share your incredible journey. I would love to travel right back and dig into your story and how and why you travelled to Japan to seek out Dr. Masaki Hutsumi-sensei, the Grand Master of Ninjutsu Fighting Art. Mm. Well, that was uh, 41 years ago. 41 years ago. Uh, I was a young man in my 20s and uh, looking for a martial art that I just couldn't seem to find. It was the height of the 1970s in America. Uh, We had no senior practitioners. Everybody was my age, 20, 30 years old. And, uh, you know, and to tell the truth... uh, Back then, there was a fascination with the glitzy lifestyle. Cocaine was uh, uh, de rigueur. Uh, Everybody was involved in uh, cocaine and cowboy boots and gold chains and none of the philosophical uh, aspects of the martial arts were available. so I looked all around the U.S. I had about 10 years in karate and uh, a political change in Korea made me have to start all over again. Uh, they they nationalized Taekwondo and I was in Tang Sudo and I just didn't feel like going on with that. All these uh, things that were... Uh, driving me, I decided I would leave America and go to Japan, try to find the 34th head of the ninja tradition there. Uh, I wrote letters, got no reply, uh, but it was just too much to resist the thought that that existed. So I 
got on an airplane and went to Japan yeah. and managed to to pull off miracle, a miracle. I found the place and they accepted me as a student. Mm-hmm. I loved how you actually wrote a letter and didn't get a reply, but I think it's a great story and I loved your persistence. And I mean, what would have ever happened if you just hadn't gone forth, let's say, and just decided to travel to Japan and you just decided to give up on your vision and what you really want to achieve? You probably most certainly wouldn't have ever achieved this level of mastery, in my opinion, but maybe not, but I think it illustrates a lesson that you should never give up on your dreams. You know, I think so. I think so. Um, There's uh, an esoteric tradition, you know, it's sort of a spiritual tradition uh, connected with the ninja. And one of the aspects are these uh, four magical legs. And one of the magical legs is you can just want something so badly that obstacles just fall away. I mean, uh, you can want something so much that uh, it it defies rationality uh, to accomplish it. I think maybe that's what it was in my age. I was just so determined Mm -hmm. that uh, I managed to make it happen. Yeah. Stephen, the real question, and I think the one everyone would like to know is, is it like Batman? (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a little like batman you know when i first went to japan i would tell people you know i came to study the ninja oh no one would believe me people would be just astonished uh so i learned as time went by i would say i'm here to study budo budo uh just martial arts in general and they'd say oh you mean like judo or kendo and i'd say Yes, kind of like that, and uh, change the subject. <laughs> yeah, I, and then I would say, well, it's like coming to America, you know, an immigrant and saying, well, I want to go to Gotham City and study with Batman. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, was there a test before they would accept you and teach you their ways? Like, did you need to demonstrate something of who you are and your abilities? Or did you have to prove yourself in any way to Masaki Hatsumi-sensei? No. Uh, actually, it was kind of the other way around. They uh, showed me a few techniques, and it was unlike anything I'd seen in my, my 10 years of martial art training in the 1960s and early 70s in America. I was just amazed Um but they didn't uh, test me out or want to see what I knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just uh, uh, invited me to come to training the next night. Mm-hmm. Stephen, do you feel that like there was like still any like secrets that they never taught you, or, or did they fully trust you? Well, well, you know that's uh, it's a very deep subject. Yeah. Um, I have a, well, I'll go into it, you know. I I have a feeling that when I first began training Mm -hmm. in the 70s, there were like 14 people involved. I mean, in the entire world, 14 Mm -hmm. people. And uh, the training was uh, very intense, uh, involved everything from 
unarmed combat to a short stick to a shuriken to things that we would call psychic uh, in nature, um, predicting the future. Uh, and then I came back to America years later and wrote several books. I just hinted, just hinted at what all was involved. I didn't teach how to do it. Um, but I noticed they radically changed um, what they were teaching in Japan because now all these foreigners were flooding in. They all wanted to be Stephen Hayes, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, they changed. Uh, uh, they denied a lot of things. And of course, it made me look awkward. You know, here I was writing about this stuff in books and people in Japan saying, oh, no, no, we don't do that. We don't do this. Uh, um, made me look like a liar. Um, yeah. But I reported my experience and uh, they, they changed the public face. So it, it becomes a question of, I believe I was taught all the secrets yeah. But the modern students, I I wonder what they're getting. I wonder what they're learning uh, in Japan now. Yeah, it's interesting that. Um, Stephen, why do you think like ninjutsu has lasted for so many years? And I think it's been around for a thousand years. Well, I think um, that uh, a couple of things. Number one, it's very natural movement. Uh, yeah. Now, you know, it's funny because a lot of martial arts say that, oh, yes, we're very natural movement. And you look at the movement it's not natural at all, you know, uh, yeah. but people like to say that. But this is very natural movement using physical principles um, to defeat larger, more determined, more angry uh, individuals. Um, also, it's one of the few really self-defense martial arts in the world and i mean you know that people might argue with that but seriously there's no sporting version of it um there's no art uh where people just perform by themselves it's very self-defense and it has a strong philosophy uh based on the ninja of how to escape how to just get out of there uh, rather than uh, now, there are lessons in what if you have to stay and fight, but also included is just how to uh, escape, how to uh, fluster somebody who's coming in with an attack, and just get out of get out of there if 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 possible. So I think maybe all of those um, reasons uh, in the West where. We are restricted by some extreme laws. I imagine in the UK, you've got your tales of crazy things that happen, you know? Oh, yeah. Breaks into someone's house for three times, and they finally set a trap for them, and the victim is punished more than the uh, attacker is. I mean, that's crazy. But that's yeah. the world we live in. And mm. so the ninja um, embodied... Uh, a lot of that kind of sensibility uh, as well. Mm. 
Stephen, what do you think it is about ninjutsu that makes it different from any other martial art? Well, uh, nowadays, um, we see what they call sogo budo. Sogo budo, it's kind of a combination, you know, spear and sword and uh, unarmed. But back in the 70s, that was very much unheard of. Uh, mm-hmm. Person practiced karate, how to make linear strikes and kicks, or they practiced jujitsu, how to uh, grapple and uh, lock people up, or kendo, which is uh, the sword. And in fact, in the early 80s, um, you know, the the lore of the ninja was so popular. I was in uh, Black Belt magazine uh, so many times, and other people didn't like that and they would write in this isn't real uh he's just making this up uh there's no martial art that has everything he takes a little judo and a little karate and some kali sticks and a little zen and he's he's just making it up and of course i wasn't making it up but it was that alarming to people back in the Mm -hmm. early 80s a martial art that encompassed everything yeah so, Stephen, why do you think there's, like, no ninjas in combat areas now, like, such as the UFC? Well, I think that, number one, uh, the ninja martial art is, you know, really for everybody. Uh, the UFC is for champions. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, a certain age, a certain kind of physique, a certain kind of uh, build. And, uh, of course, if you look at the rules that uh, guide the UFC, um, I mean, people don't normally think about that. But, uh, you know, if a person's on the mat with their knees, you can't kick them. Uh, You know, there there are all kinds of rules that the fighters have to take into consideration. It's an athletic contest. It's a consensual fight with uh, its rules, um, it's just a comes from a different place, I guess, a different philosophy than uh, the ninja martial art. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's still a lot of restrictions in UFC, like you said, but I think as well the UFC has been brilliant because it's bringing more attention and, uh, let's say, recognition in many other like different forms of martial art. And I think at the minute there's like a really good vibe around different martial art forms, which is brilliant. Yeah, you know, the UFC really, uh, you know, and there are other variations, you know, K1 and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that general phenomena really uh, uh, brought it home, didn't they? Uh, what yeah. is real? What's really going to work? And if you look out, outside the rules and, uh, you know, the predetermined nature of the fight, no, it's... Uh, there have been some amazing uh, reversals and uh, amazing techniques that people have seen and and certainly uh, made martial arts very popular, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Now, I'll say this, though. I have some nephews that, uh, you know, are like in their 30s, and they go yeah. on Friday night to, uh, you know, roasted wings and beer bar and watch these fights with a lot of people. They're They're never... Never gonna get in the ring. They're never gonna train like that. Yeah. But they'll watch other people, and I think that sometimes we in the martial arts c- 
can kind of mistake that. We see this as so popular, but it's become like National Football League. Um, people watch it, but, you know, Monday they're not going to say, hey, let's get 22 of us together and play football. No, they, they, they don't participate at all. So I don't know, you know, how much uh, uh, actual participation is, is engendered and how much is just people passively watching and enjoying uh, UFC. So, you know, that, that remains to be seen, huh? Yeah, definitely. Stephen, just to jump back to um, before about when you were training, with your time training in Japan, I was just wondering, it must have been like so hard, like when you're ingrained in their ways and their culture, it must be like so difficult to come back to what we class as normal society. How does that affect you? Do you need some form of like transition time to fit back in with the newfound Eastern philosophy, let's say? Well, you know, that's really, uh, that's a very interesting thought. Very interesting thought. I, I remember, uh, being in Japan, I was in Japan for so long that I started to kind of think like a Japanese. And I remember I, I had just come back. I was married and uh, uh, to a Japanese, and I moved. I came to Ohio, and uh, I uh, was at a restaurant, and I went up to the hostess, and I said, uh, can you tell me where the uh, restroom was? And she said, oh, yes, you go out the door, you go down the street, you'll come to a Shell gasoline station. And she was just kidding. You know, she was just kidding around. And uh, I'm very seriously listening to this, thinking, that's very strange. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, oh, she was joking. Such a thing would never happen in Japan, would never happen in Japan. You know, a worker yeah. person would be very polite. Oh, yes, sir, you go down here and you take a left and... And, you know, I was taking this so seriously. She was just joking around. And I realized, you know, I'm not in Japan anymore. I'm, I'm in America. <laughs> uh, you know, there's such a, uh, you know, that's just one small story where, yeah, I became so used to the Eastern way that uh, I was like a, a foreigner in my own country. Yeah. Mm. Stephen, what would you uh, regard as the most valuable lessons that you've learned from your years of martial art practice? Hmm. Well, I would say that um, probably a acceptance of being very honest with oneself. Uh, you know, it doesn't you know, there, there are certain things that I'm good at. There are certain things my students are good at and other things are not good at. And just accept that um, and choose to uh, study and become good at it or choose to, uh, in this lifetime, uh, I'm just not going to be very good at that. And to be at comfort with that rather than, you know, making somebody else wrong or arguing uh uh, a, a, a very deep honesty with uh, oneself, um, I, I think, is probably one of the most important lessons I've learned from the martial arts. Yeah, it's like there's something so beautiful about uh, being completely honest with yourself. 
like it shows you completely naked as well and vulnerable. You know, that's true. And if you accept that cheerfully, you know, people can't hold anything against you. Um, So, uh, for instance, there are martial art organizations in uh, the U.S. that have just thousands and thousands of members and they have these programs for running a martial arts school in their association and they have thousands of schools and uh you know i look at that i'm a little bit jealous (laughs) (laughs) one of the things i'm not very good at is organizing and uh, working with uh, lots and lots of people and so we have a relatively small organization, you know, 20-some people in the world uh, teaching with us. Uh, but uh, so if somebody comes in and makes an accusation, well, you're not, you know, you're supposed to be the great Stephen Hayes and you can't even run an organization. Uh, I go, yeah, yeah, how about that? <laughs> Just chuckle at it. Uh, uh, a, a person loses their leverage uh over what I'm doing, and uh, um, I think there's something kind of amusing about that, you know. Yeah, I think there's something beautiful about that as well, Stephen. Like you truly value like your principle, and you truly value your honesty about yourself. I think that's a really good trait. Oh yeah, yeah. Stephen, I'd just like to ask you, what do you think the true spirit of the ninja is, and how would you describe it? Well, to go back in history. Uh, nobody wanted to be a ninja. Um, it was forced upon these families in the Iga and Koka regions of Japan. Uh, there was a huge war in the late 1100s. Um, one side won and one side lost. And the losers saw themselves as uh, capable of ruling and uh had their best interests of their people in mind and so forth, but they lost the political and military struggle. Yeah. So um, the uh, the motivation, they had to win somehow. Well, they didn't have a tax base, so they couldn't, you know, obtain all these weapons and uh conscripted soldiers, they had to come up with a radically different way to win. And uh, so they borrowed a little from China and uh, uh, they created this uh, uh, way of working their will without taking uh, um, bold physical action. And I think that's what's lived on into today 2016 um the the way of working one's will uh without having to uh take bold action well i like that um steven i know i know the early japanese regarded their whole like world like rivers mountains lakes and trees to have like their own energy and spirit but something I want to touch on was how does like ninjutsu work with natural elements and maybe how much a part of your training was working with natural elements? Um, yeah, you know, the uh, indigenous uh, spiritual system of Japan, we call it Shinto today, but back in the ancient days before Buddhism 
was introduced in the 500s, there was no word to describe it. It was just such a part of Japanese life. They didn't, yeah. they didn't use the word Shinto. They didn't have a way to describe it. They just needed a word to describe it after these uh, other uh, religions came to Japan. Uh, people were so in touch with uh, nature, uh, a special tree, a, a huge rock, um, a certain river um, that had its own energy and mm -hmm. kind of had its own mind, you might even say. Uh, very similar to what I'm told the uh, indigenous American Indians observed. Um, these things are very powerful forces in nature. Um, they don't always have our best interest in mind. Um, uh, great prairie fires in America, um, but that's what it took to uh, keep the prairie a prairie. Um, same thing in Japan, uh, uh, weathered uh, boulder, a uh, uh, special tree, uh, was associated with that area and people came to revere uh, their role in the bigness of nature. Mm -hmm. It's also my uh, understanding that the ninjas were also very mu uh, much influenced by a group of people called, the, um, I think they're called the Shugenja, I think. That's how you pronounce it. It's quite hard to pronounce it. Yeah, yeah, Shugenja. Um, you know, there's some discussion. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever know the the real uh, thing. It's so far back in history. Who came first, the Shugenja yeah. or the Ninja? Um, the Shugenja were uh, Yamabushi is another word that's used. They were people who would go up into the mountains to experience directly, uh, kind of challenge directly the spirits of nature. And back in those ancient days, the mountains were seen as where uh, departed spirits went. Uh, so people didn't go to the mountains just walking or hiking. You did not do that. Yeah. Um, the mountains were seen as far off. That's where the spirits went. So for a person to go up into the mountains and have these experiences is very unusual, very unusual. And then they would come back down to the flatland where the people lived and, you know, bestow blessings and so forth. Um, but and, and so as religious pilgrims, they could go from region to region in the mountains and they were permitted to do that without having to get border passes. And so later, as the warring states developed, uh you know, that was very attractive to the ninja, the ability to just move all around, go observe, watch a castle being built, come back and, you know, tell the uh, uh, military commanders all that they'd seen. Uh, so it became, uh, yeah, uh, did the ninja start this Shugenja <laughs> or did the Shugendo support the ninja it's kind of hard to uh, say there's still shugen training in japan by the way oh well i was going to say as well i think it's it was like a method of a uh, spiritual um self-discovery wasn't it that consisted of like subjecting yourself to like harsh weather and terrain yeah. like in order to yeah in order to, like draw strength from the earth itself 
And I think I think they would walk through fire and stand beneath like um, freezing waterfalls and hang over edges of cliffs, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, it's it's a I, I participated in uh, in that training too since the yeah. uh, 1970s, and uh, it is amazing. You know, you look at burning coals. And we realize, you know, you put a steak on there, it'll 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 cook. <laughs> but walk across it. Um, I think I've done that like sixteen times. Uh, oh, fire walk. Wow. And uh, one time, I don't know, maybe eight eighth fire walk. Uh, I thought, well, you know, I got out halfway across this bed of coals and flames. I thought, you know, I'm going to see if I can just regulate my body processes and and come to a halt and uh, uh, meditate through this. And so I walked out and stopped. <laughs> nope, that's not <laughs> you got You know, you've got to keep moving. you got to keep charging. <laughs> oh, boy, both feet came flying up off the ground. <laughs> I, I scrambled across the rest of the flames and... Uh, no, you don't stop. <laughs> you don't stop when you start going. Oh, Stephen, like when you participated in them, did this? Did you overcome fear? Did you draw the powers of nature? Well, you know, I think um, that's a really good question. Um, I got an experience. The first of these nine magical powers they call them kuji kuji uh kuji no ho the first of the nine powers is strength and what it takes to get out of our way so i think you're right i think i did learn about uh, uh overcoming fear um just charge in and do it uh now it helped me to see the seniors go through it first so i knew it was possible it seemed crazy, but I knew it was possible, and uh, so I just put my rational thought on hold and just charged out there, and uh, and I, I I did it. But I also know of other people who question, I don't know, and they take two or three steps, and they burn their feet and uh, uh, have to be hauled off the fire very quickly. So there is something magical about truly uh, believing and just getting out of our own way. Mm-hmm. When I mentioned before about the, um, the different spiritual methods, I know it'd probably be like incorrect to say that them spiritual methods were like actual roots of ninjutsu, but I, there's no doubt that they were a large influence in my opinion. And I know like the, the roots of ninjutsu was full of like other many spiritual traditions, but I was just wondering if like you could tell us a bit about some other spiritual traditions that you encountered. Sure. I, uh, uh, also practiced uh, with uh, different Buddhist lineages, uh, esoteric. There's the uh, kind of everyday Buddhism. Um, maybe we associate it with uh, Sri Lanka or uh, Thailand. Um, and, uh, you know, I can say this kind of comically, but there's just a lot of rules. You know, yeah. uh, the idea is how to lead an exemplary life. Uh, you just go where temptations are not, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you're a heavy smoker, you go where you just can't smoke. Uh, there are no cigarettes available. Um, 
if you're always flirting around and getting in trouble, you go where there are no girls or women would go where there are no men around. Um, so that's something, you know, that I'm aware of. But in Japan, they have what's called the esoteric Buddhist tradition. Uh, and that esoteric means you have to experience it to understand it. You can't really describe it like you could the uh, fundamental of Buddhism. And uh, so they use a lot of artwork, a lot of images. Um, in the old days, they would they would make mandalas out of sand. Um, uh, and so I've, I've derived a lot of value from that, uh, you know, from that training. I uh, came back to America in the 80s and there was nothing, you know, of the Japanese esoteric Buddhism available. So I got involved with Tibetan teachers who'd been in exile since the 1950s when uh, communist China invaded Tibet. Uh, and so I have uh, you know 20 some years of experience with uh, Tibetan teachers and it's very parallel to the Japanese esoteric Buddhism. Uh, I even got to travel with His Holiness the Dalai Lama for uh, 10 years. I was his uh, security escort when he came to uh, uh, Middle America here. So uh, I got access to all of his uh, senior teachers. Uh, you know, it was a real, uh, a real blessing. Uh, and I got into it all by, uh, you know, what I said, just kind of by accident. Uh, I started the ninja training, and all of this came to me. Mm. Wow. Stephen, I'd love to know, like, what led you to Buddhism? Well, I think it kind of found me rather than me finding it. Uh, wow. If I can get a little far out here, a little far out, I think... Oh, grow as far as you need. Grow <laughs> as far as you need. <laughs> you know, I think we... Uh, in uh, the esoteric Buddhist tradition, they say to make a baby, you need three things. You need a mother to carry the baby. You need a father to inspire the baby. And the third part is you need a, a karma. There's a karma left over from another lifetime. And, uh, oh, you know, that's a belief system. I don't know that I believe that, but I don't disbelieve it either. I think there's something about my life um, that these things were supposed to come to me. Now, that doesn't mean that they automatically will, you know, because mm -hmm. I have my own will. I have to experience things um, happening and make the right choices. But yeah. I do believe in a, in a, in a karma and uh, for these things to, uh, happen um you know it's just sort of my lot in life i'll tell you a quick story uh there's this one uh very obscure tibetan practice called vajra kilaya vajra kilaya and uh i got interested in this uh um you know, that's another long story how I got involved. But uh, I got involved with this and I started to translate 
the practice. So I have this Tibetan, and uh, I don't read or write Tibetan. Um, but somehow I was able to translate it and learn um, this esoteric Buddhist Tibetan. Can't say where's the restroom or, you know, I'd like a beer. I can't say that in Tibetan, but, uh, you know, I can translate these esoteric texts. And uh, I, I decided to, there are certain rhythms in Tibetan, uh, nine beats or seven beats to line. And I thought, well, you know, if I could translate into English, where the English would match the Tibetan, the English could say the English and uh, Tibetan say the Tibetan and recite it together. And uh, the head of the Tibetan Sakya lineage, it's a 41 generation old tradition. Uh, uh, and miraculously, he speaks impeccable English, impeccable English. And uh, uh, he's, he's like four years older than I am. And so I was speaking to him, and I told him I was working on this. And he says, oh, no, no, you can't do that. Uh, in Tibetan, we use like half words to make the rhythm work. You, you you won't be able to do that in English. And so I showed him the book that I'd put together, and he's looking at it and flips the pages. He goes, oh, you can do it. <laughs> so, I mean, how could this character from Ohio who's untrained in classical Tibetan possibly put such a thing together. I don't know. I, I like, I, you know, half jokingly say, I um, must've been left over from another lifetime where I had to come back and finish it up. <laughs> well, Stephen, I'd love to know, like, has there been any experiences in, in Buddhism that has really changed your life or, influence your life in like a profound way well yeah just traveling with the Dalai Lama um, uh, just indescribable um, what a superb role model um, to be around and you know I've been around several celebrities um, in my life and uh, sometimes on stage they present a certain you know, bigger than life quality and you get backstage yeah. and they're very disappointing. You know, they're just, yeah. just regular people. Uh, the Dalai Lama totally lives up to his billing. I mean, I was around him seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Uh, as odd as it sounds, I was the one who decided whether his family members could see him, uh, you know, have an interview with him. And, uh, so, I mean, I was totally there, and the uh, guy totally lives up to his billing. Um, there's wow. nothing uh, fake uh, about him, and that really influenced me a, a lot. It really did. It helped me to see the value of being very honest um, and, you know, caring about people. Uh, so, I think that... Uh, I got a very unique, a very unique blessing from the Buddhist tradition uh, in the time I spent with uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. How did that come about? Well, let's see. I'm 
try to make this a short story. It was really long. I went to Tibet in 1985 and 1986 just because I, I, you know, I, I, I felt pulled. Um, and, uh, oh, it was crazy. I had like a one-year-old baby and uh, my wife was home. And so we had her sister come over from Japan and stay with her to help take care of the babies. But I just had to go, you know, I disappeared. And this is before the internet or you know, Facebook or emails or anything, you know, so I would, I literally disappeared. Uh, but I, uh, got to meet the Dalai Lama in India in 1986. And, uh, he, by, uh, chance told me about his brother who lives in Indiana, which is right next to Ohio, you know? And so I went over to see his brother who was the first Tibetan to leave, uh, um, Tibet, and uh, he went to Japan and ended up in Indiana University teaching as a professor. And, and just by coincidence, a few months later, the Dalai Lama came to Indiana, and uh, I got a chance to be with him again. And uh, then in 88, he uh, came back. Uh, 89, he was in California, and I went out to this place, little sleepy college town in uh, south of Los Angeles. The Dalai Lama was going to be there, and by now I knew some of the family members and the political officers, and that's when they found out that he had won the Nobel Peace Prize. And, I mean, the place exploded. All kinds of press were there and celebrities, and so I jumped in. And, you know, from my background in the ninja martial art, I just helped with some of the security. And uh, uh, from that time on, whenever His Holiness was in uh, Middle America, uh, the, they would call me up and uh, ask me to uh, be the head security liaison. Um, I did that for 10 years until uh, 2000. And that's when we finally got the United States government to provide protection. And I mean, they brought in all kinds of agents and bomb sniffing dogs and yeah. uniform people. It was what the Dalai Lama really needed. Uh, yeah. 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 Did, um, did the whole experience change your, change your way of thinking, Stephen? Well, slowly, slowly, uh, it did. Um, uh, Dalai Lama would kind of tease me about uh, martial arts and, uh, you know, that uh, helped me to see the ninja martial art in uh, its authentic, uh, its, its authentic way. Before that, I, I had a karate background and maybe I, you know, superimposed some of the karate values on the ninja martial art and uh, traveling with the Dalai Lama, it helped me to make that breakthrough to really understand, no, these were protectors uh, and they didn't go looking for fights. They didn't glory in being able to beat this one or conquer that one. Um, so traveling with him, I think uh, certainly helped me mature as a human being. Well, amazing story. Uh, to bring this to end, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think true wisdom is or what does true wisdom mean to you? 
Oh, wisdom is, uh, uh, I've been through a lot. I've mm-hmm. been through a lot. I've studied a lot. I've experienced a lot. And I've paid attention. Uh, those are the two branches of wisdom. Lots of experience and paying attention. I think we all know people who've been through a lot in their life, but they really weren't paying attention. They haven't changed or the experience changes them in ways that maybe aren't very good, you know? And we also have other people that pay a lot of attention, but they just haven't had much experience. So, uh, lots of experience and paying attention, uh, to the effects that it has on us. Uh, and that's why older people are usually seen as wise. They've had more experience and more opportunities to, pay attention than, uh, you know, a really young one. Mm-hmm. Stephen, may I say that you are an absolute fascinating man. It's been truly an honor to have you on this podcast. But I'd just like to say, how can people find you and what are you currently working on? Well, the, uh, the best way uh, to get in touch with me is uh, through my uh, website, NinjaSelfDefense.com. You just write that like one word, N-I-N-J-A-S-E-L-F-D-E-F-E-N-S-E.com. It's a subscription uh, website. People can pay a little bit, and uh, all of our teachings are uh, put on there. We're adding more every month. Um, That'd be the best way um, to... uh, to get in touch. Uh, and I'm, I'm really excited about it now. I'm, you know, I have so many friends from, you know, New Zealand, uh, Europe that write to me and we don't have schools there, but now people can actually, uh, practice, uh, based on this, uh, uh, kind of, uh, video presentation. So ninjaselfdefense.com, uh, that's good. Uh, Stephen K. Hayes, all like one word, StephenKHayes.com is uh, another website that I maintain that also has my schedule for, for teaching. I'm not going to be in Europe this year, um, but sometimes I do come over to England or to uh, Germany to teach. Uh, so, yeah, NinjaSelfDefense.com or StephenKHayes.com, that would be, uh, that'd be the best way. Thank you. I'd like to say thank you for being an absolute amazing, amazing guest. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I want to find out more about what what you're doing there. I see this picture of you with the apples. That looks fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> 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 right at the beginning of your journey, I think you found out honesty, and as soon as they understand honesty about themselves, then they can start to make the changes. And that's when they can be truly honest with themselves and they can bring in themselves this new way of thinking. And I think that's what the three of us have all got in common right now is that we're all on this great wavelength, just pushing for this new found inner peace which we can give the universe. And I'm so grateful for your time. I really am. And I'm honored that you have been on our podcast, sir. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Great talking with you guys. Wonderful. Yeah, certainly. No problem. I would just like to say as well for the listeners um, that Stephen is going to say us out with like a beautiful quote that he wrote. So I would just like to say, sit back and relax. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, brings back memories.
<laughs> yeah, I came across I came across it when I was um, doing a bit of research on you, and I just I just read it, and I thought that's just that would just be a beautiful way to end the podcast. Leave oh. mm. people inspired. Sure, yeah. you know I think uh, we can see life as uh, you know sometimes unfair. Uh, other people get better advantages, and uh, you know or cruel things happen to us, and we feel helpless, and maybe that's not really what's happening. So the quote is, we human beings choose to see things as we wish. Few people seem to believe this though. We decide to be jealous or angry or depressed or happy or bored. And these choices are often based on our biased interpretations of the thoughts of others. It's amazing how much psychological control many people relinquish to others. If we think that someone else disapproves of us, we're worried. If we think that someone else is pleased with us, we're happy. If we think that someone else holds views contrary to our own, we're insulted. If we think that someone else is contemptuous, uh, we are angry. With all these others determining how we feel, it is sometimes difficult to find the actual self. Thank you for taking time out to listen. Head over to beastified.com for other previous episodes. And while you're at it, tell a friend about the podcast. Let's keep pushing forward as human beings. And together, we can improve this experience and enjoy this journey.